Good morning, everybody. I am going to read from Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, uh, about halfway through the Old Testament. If you want to pull one of the Bibles out in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 732. If you just want to follow along on the screen, or if you have an electronic device, you're probably already there. I'm just going to read uh, two of the verses and then hope to explain them to you that we could all understand. So hear the word of the Lord as I read from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. We just finished, if you were with us, uh, a, a study of James all fall. And as Isaac said, beginning in January, we're going to start a short series uh, through the story that unfolds in the book of Exodus And so in between, we're looking at the songs of Christmas. Uh, Today, uh, next week on the 23rd, the Christmas Eve services in which we have at 5, 7, and 10. And then on the 30th, which is the last Sunday of the month, we will have our fourth uh, song or hymn. And so this morning... We are looking at the one of the songs of Christmas and the scripture that inspired it that I just read, Isaiah 11. The hymn was sung by the choir. We followed along on the screens, Lo, how a rose air blooming. It, it's believed to be uh, a song, one of our oldest Christmas carols, uh, way back in the 14th century, about the middle to late part of the 1300s. We're not really sure because it was lost for almost 200 years. That is, people knew about it, people uh, sang it, but we didn't have uh, uh, any of the original copies of the hymn until the 15th century, uh, 16th century, the 1500s, 200 years later, they found a rare copy uh, that whoever uh, composed it, which we don't know, uh, was found in a German monastery uh, with the music attached. And it's only the two first verses that, w- that the choir sang that both of them end with the same ending uh, when uh, half spent the night uh, ends those two pieces. The, the other uh, two uh, verses that are often associated with this hymn were added much later. Uh, but the two that, that we're going to focus on t- uh, this morning with Isaiah 11 are just those first two that end with the same refrain, uh, when half spent was the night. As you listen to the choir, it's got a kind of a real beautiful, melancholy feel to the piece of music. And it really fits the words because there seems to be a longing, a waiting, an almost uh, hope that the 
original people of Isaiah's day would have been longing for their Messiah in the midst of what they felt themselves as a stump, a leftover glory of what they once were. The whole idea of moving from the 13th century, uh, the 14th century to the 16th century, you're moving literally from the Middle Ages, which is often called what? The Dark Ages, into the Reformation, which has often been referred to as the light. One of the the, the Reformation mottos that came out of that period of time was a Latin word uh, uh, phrase, which was a post tenebrae lux, which is, is after the darkness light. And this hymn almost kind of pictures that. That is, even though it was written in the 14th century and then found in the 16th century, it almost bridges for us this idea of after the darkness light. It recognizes this tension that exists, that world in which we live sits between two advents. The first advent is the advent of the coming of our Savior uh, 2,000 years ago. Imagine it from 2,000 years before that or, or, or 600 years or 700 years before that, uh, uh, back when the, the kingdom of Israel was a united under David and then Solomon, his son. And then after Solomon, it, it divides into a northern a ten uh, tribes and a southern uh, two tribes. And the Assyrians come in 700 years before Christ is, is uh, born and devastate the land and carry all the people and scatter them by the Assyrians. And then shortly, almost... Uh, uh, 600 years before Christ, the Babylonians do the same thing to the southern kingdom and take off the people out of Jerusalem into Babylonia. And you can almost feel their own tension of what they believed, their own stump of life. That is, is that there once was a great oak tree, there was a, or a great, uh, magnificent, beautiful, living fruit-bearing tree of a kingdom, and now all that remains is a stump. And so they're longing for the Messiah. They're longing for the Christ. They're longing for the one who will come, and they have this promise. They have this promise of a, of a shoot eventually coming out of what appears to be a dead stump, and that they're, from the roots of this stump are going to produce a fruit. The way that our our composer uh, gets at that. He says there's a flower blooming in cold winter. There literally is a rose, by the way, that blooms in the wintertime in Germany. That Luther made much of in his writings. And one of the reasons why you find the rose, which is the Middle Ages period of reference to Jesus Christ. And you can almost feel that half spent was this night in which Christ came, this tension of the light coming into the world, but even leaving before it was dawn. And that the space that we live in, that every human being on this planet lives in between those two realities or two advents. He came, but all things yet have not been made new. All that has not been made right. 
I was reading an article uh, this week about this young uh, girl who, with her parents, were part of the illegal uh, entry into the United States only to die. And it really doesn't matter what your politics is, that's not right. Nobody, nobody that young should ever die, much less in the custody of our people. This hymn seems to have been inspired by the words of the prophet Isaiah as he speaks to a a nation that is about to be devastated by invaders. And truthfully, from Israel's perspective, nothing could be worse than it is right now. Life couldn't have gone worse for them. This beautiful northern kingdom is going to be gone. The southern kingdom that is shortly going to be gone. And all that is left of a former glory and all hope has been lost. To the point where Psalm 137, which was written about this same time, says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered what? Zion. On the willows there we hung up our instruments. For where our captors required of us to sing. Our tormentors told us to sing one of the songs of Zion. And then the psalmist says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You can almost, you can almost feel the same melancholy, the same uh, uh, slow drumbeat that we, that we heard in the singing of the choir as they sang this beautiful choral piece. From the last sentence of the Old Testament until the first sentence of the New Testament is about 400 years. And it's 400 years of pure silence from God. Can you imagine your, your glorious history has been laid waste and one captor after another has subjected you and oppressed you and, and on top of that, your God has seemed to have gone silent. As they awaited a new day. And as fast as the ink is drying on the Old Testament, there's no new day. All that is left for Israel here in the prophecy is a whisper of hope from heaven. A shoot's going to come, guys. What seems like a stump, your life, your glory, your purpose, your meaning, your identity is just a stump. But from that stump... It's going to come a shoot. It's going to come a flower in cold winter when night is half spent, when nobody expected, and it's going to bear fruit. The imagery here of the Savior's birth, what was barren and decaying, is now going to become life because a Savior is coming. That's the whisper that they had to live on for hundreds of years.
Do you feel like a stump today? Some of us here today identify ourselves more with that stump than we do with the shoot. You stood for the longest time, but somewhere along the way you've lost your strength to stand. You feel like your life has been cut down and the mirror, instead of reminding you uh, of your future, it shows you of your past. And you've lost all hope. Any hope of a better day has long faded in your memory. This week I had a, had a conversation with a friend and he's been going through a difficult time for some time. He's a PCA pastor. He, he planted a church and what often we don't tell church planters is only about a half of you are going to be able to see that church plant go on and healthy. Most, not most, about half of the churches in the United States never make it to viability and they die. No church planner thinks that that would be his church and it was John's church. Not only did he have to preside over the funeral of his church that he planted, but he had to begin to look for a new calling, a new opportunity of ministry. And for a while, he worked in a parachurch because no church had offered an opportunity. And he certainly was so discouraged by church planting, he didn't want to go back into church planting and go through this again, or at least take this opportunity to do it again. And, and so just recently, a church in New York had called him and said, hey, would you come and be our pastor? We're viable. We're meeting our budget. We've got people joining in our church. All we need is a pastor. John loved the idea. And we in the Presbyterian Church in America, when you move from one place or one job to another, you have to submit yourself again to an exam. And typically, like in our area, it just is... How do you view creation? How do you view how people come to Christ? It's more about your views and it's all orally and it's, it's basically, we love you, brother. You're already one of us. Other Presbyterians, it's like going through the whole thing again when you first came in years ago. It, it would be like those of you uh, who are physicians. Can you imagine sitting for your medical boards again? But this time after 20 years of being a doctor, You've forgotten more than you've remembered. Imagine if you're a lawyer and you, and you have to sit for your bar exam again. Or your professional engineer exam that you would have to do again. Every time you change the job. Well, that's how my profession is. Another reason not to leave. <laughs> John had interviewed at this church and he said, you know, I've got one thing I think you, you need to know about me. I'm sure they wanted to know everything about him. But one of the things that really are going to affect you is that I go through every so many years a serious bout with depression. And sometimes it's completely dis, uh, disabling. I'm, I'm good for nothing. And sometimes I can function while I'm struggling through it. And they said, that's fine. We've got lots of people who struggle with depression and struggle with other things. You'll be a great 
uh, uh, minister to people who go through those kinds of things. And, and, and so it was part of the package. Well, what they didn't anticipate is just at the moment of his exams came one of these bouts. And, and so he's standing for this exam where he had to do written and oral exams about what he knows about church history and, and, and what he knows about church government and what he knows about the Bible. And you say, well, they ought to know all these things. Yeah, you ought to try some of these exams. When I first got to our presbytery, it was taking the average person 24 hours to complete our exam, to come into our presbytery. How long did it take you to take your medical boards? Not nearly as long. Anyway, he didn't answer his questions very clearly. The fog of depression made him not be precise. So the presbytery failed him. And so when he goes to the church who called him, he says, I can't come as your pastor because I failed the exams. And rather than coming around and say, you know what? Oh, you can do it again, and you can. You can keep on going. You keep trying. They said, well, we didn't anticipate it would be this big of a problem this soon. And so he, he calls, he says, what do you do? I had no idea. I write these things six weeks before I deliver them. That this message really is for John. That God has given us hope. Because Jesus is not only coming, I mean, not only came the first time, he's coming back. And the, and the evidence that you need to know that when he comes, he's going to make all things new is he came the first time. And he kicked a hole in this world that he'll come back through. That's the whisper of hope from heaven. There's truly no easy answers for John. There's no easy answers for anyone in this room. The line between real hope and hopelessness is thin and it's fragile. It's breakable when you're talking about the human heart. Have you ever heard the cries of, dis, dis, uh, uh, of uh, desperation? Maybe it was your cry and you didn't even notice you were groaning. Or maybe it was of your friend or family member or in this case somebody that I barely know. The life drained out of those who are under the weight of trials, they just have simply given up and what do you offer? Maybe you've heard them say words like, or maybe you've said yourself, it's over, I'm finished. Things couldn't get any worse. Every time I think of that, they always do. Sometimes people have said to me, you know, I just wish I could curl up and and die. I've lost all hope that things could ever get better. Have you ever felt that way yourself? Have you ever stood over the grave of someone you love and wailed? I know that's not part of our culture, but it is part of other cultures and certainly the biblical culture. What do you do? Where do you turn? What do you say? Or have you come to the conclusion that there are no answers? If you've given up all hope, 
I want you to hear the whisper from heaven of hope. A shoot has come from the stump of Jesse. And from its roots, there is fruit. Advent is, simply means expectantly waiting. Advent is a celebration of Jesus' first coming. Because we're on the other side. 2,000 years later, we know. Even secularists know there was a Jesus. He was written in, in, into history even by those who didn't believe in him as the Messiah. But Advent is also the standing on your tiptoes waiting for his second coming. And, and if we have really struggled with anything, the evangelical church is that. We wait, but it's not with the anticipation of standing on the tips of your toes. We've grown accustomed that it's into the future so far that it has no present implications. Advent means all the violence and oppression and injustice and even death itself has an expiration date that nothing can be done about. And Advent also means that the new heavens and the new earth have a guaranteed on-time arrival date and nothing can stop it. In the gospel, we are told that the Lord is near to us in our weary years and in our silent tears. And that his promise of justice and restoration is sure. And while we may know the bleakness of the waiting, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to breathe into us the beauty of the hope of a returning Savior. Let me tell you about three phenomenal psychiatrists that came out of Vienna, Austria before World War II. One you know as the, almost the father of psychiatry, uh, Sigmund Freud. And as he studied human behavior, he came to the conclusion that we are primarily being motivated in our behavior uh, by pleasure. One of his uh, later students, a guy named Alfred Adler, uh, looked at human, again, behavior and concluded it wasn't pleasure, you were wrong, it's power. The fact that we feel powerless and weak and we're in the pursuit of power. And then there was a young man who was studying under Adler. His name was Viktor Frankl. He was 22 years old and he was in uh, uh, medical school. He graduated uh, uh, at the top of his class in neurology and uh, what later would become psychiatry. The only job he could get when he was done was in Rothschild's Hospital in Vienna, which was the only place in 1939 that would allow you to uh, treat Jews because all, uh, all three of these men are Jews, Jewish. And he gets married and, and live, in those days, you often live with your parents until you could afford your own place. And they were, he was living with his parents and they were all arrested in 1942 in Vienna and shipped off to a ghetto. And eventually the ghettos were emptied 
in his particular ghetto, they went to Auschwitz, the whole family, both his parents, his wife Tilly, and it's there in Auschwitz that he began to do his study of human behavior that later would become a, a, a world-renowned book that has sold more than 9 million copies and been translated into 26 languages called, what, Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote that as a result of a study in Auschwitz about people who survive versus people who die. Now, he's not saying that gas chambers and working from dawn to dusk and being starved and all of the diseases that come with that aren't important. But he, he began to notice that there was a characteristic that people who survive death camps and people who don't. And, and that became his a foundation for what later will become logotherapy, which is what he's known for. And that was that we need purpose and meaning. And those that had purpose and meaning survived the death camps and those that didn't died. And the way he put it was this. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the barracks comforting others. Can you imagine? Giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been a few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from man, but one thing cannot be taken. And that is hope. Man has to give that away. It can never be taken. Viktor Frankl watched his mother and his father die. He watched Tilly die. In fact, he was the only member of his, of his entire family that ever survived Auschwitz. He remarries. He has children. He lives to 90 years old. And he writes that famous work, Man's Search for Meaning. And what he found is what scriptures teach that there's only one place you can go. There's only one person that you can get that kind of hope that survives death camps. And it's something the Apostle Paul talked about over and over again about his own life and his own experiences. Paul says in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low and I know how to be abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things who, through him who strengthens me. And so the natural question is, what is the secret? If that's what Viktor Frankl found in the concentration camps, and if that's what uh, uh, Paul is talking about here, what is it? Then Paul gives you the strangest resume I have ever read. It's from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Once I begin, it's going to sound familiar to some of you. He says, five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this one thing, daily I felt pressure 
through anxiety for all the churches. Can you imagine? I'm giving you this long list of things that happened to me. And oh, by the way, I've got an anxiety problem. And it's because I'm worried about all the people I've led to the Lord and planted these churches. He goes on and he says, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The secret is that God is in us. And that is seen in what 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 talks about in clay pots full of cracks and fissures. I don't know what you're going through individually. Some of you I do because you tell me, but even then I only know what you tell me. I, I have no real idea. Only you and the Lord really knows. But from that shoot of Jesse, the rose that bloomed in the wintertime, the baby that was born in the half-spent night, he went to the cross for you. And he promises to return for you and give you a new day. What evidence do I have that putting your hope in the God who comes to live in you, who died for you and promises to give you a new day. What proof do I have? What evidence can I give you? Can I give you two? The first one is Israel itself. When they thought everything was lost, when all that was left was a stump to remind them of their former glory, at the right moment, when no one expected it, when... The night was half spent when it was winter and no Christmas. Jesus came. And all that darkness, all that hopelessness, the Savior came into the world. And, and sometimes we think that that, because it happened in history and those of us in the church tend to think and take that for granted that that wasn't an amazing miracle. That the creator of the planet who sat on a throne entered in into the world, the stump, and brought forth life. That second piece of evidence is not only that the, Jesus came, but he died for you. That salvation is substitution. That truly we deserve to be the stump. And yet he brought a shoot out of it and fruit came from its roots. In a world that we live in is filled with hopelessness. There's, there's hopelessness in our, our world as we, we see so much of war and and famine and disease. There's 
there's brokenness and hopelessness in our own country. It just can't seem we can't get out of our own way with our own disagreements to solve our great problems of our age. We, we can't seem to come to solutions. You know, in, in, in five days, there'll be a march in our own city to, to remember a march uh, from the, the jail in town to where they lynched an African-American named Henry Davis, in which there were 28 of them here. We can't seem to get out of our way with our hatred and our brokenness. And so it seems so hopeless. And then you throw into it our own individual families where uh, even within them there's brokenness and hopelessness. And then if we begin to turn in on ourselves and begin to look at our own hearts, we're so discouraged that we haven't made more progress. We haven't gotten further along than we thought we would. You are the people of hope because the hope is in you if Christ is in you. You are a child of hope. What I love about the gospel is that it means that you are heralds. You are not the defenders. The gospel needs no defense. Truth never needs a defender. It just needs to be proclaimed. You and I are called to walk into the hopelessness of our friends, our family, our culture, our world, and provide the only hope that there is because we're the heralds. And nobody's asking you to learn the ontological argument so that you can win against your friends. Nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. We know that that is the work of the Holy Spirit, but God has so tied his spirit to his word that the word must be proclaimed that the gospel of Jesus Christ has come and is coming back. And that is our job, to be the children of the hope that communicates to a hopeless world that there is hope in this world. He's entered in and he's coming back through the same hole that he kicked in 2,000 years ago when he defeated death. Because of the hope that is in you, you are able to herald it. This is what Paul says in Romans 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call upon the name of the Lord unless they hear? And how will they hear if no one will tell them. And then how will anyone tell them if no one goes? And I love how that section so beautifully ends. Paul said, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. God's not asking you to figure out all of the theological and all of the arguments that are necessary to argue with someone who has thought these things through but to simply proclaim them that they're true and that you are the evidence of the shoot that came out of the the stump and the fruit of the roots. Obviously, he's talking about the Savior, but we're all in Christ. 
You and I need to listen to the whisper from heaven, but we also need to proclaim the whisper from heaven. Now, you had no idea that Advent was going to be about evangelism. But how can we not be so excited that Jesus came and is coming back and not tell anyone? That, to me, that's like, that's going to the best restaurant in town and not telling anyone. It's like having the cure to cancer and not telling anyone. It's, it, it's, it's like having the solution to the greatest problem in the world and not telling anyone. Do you ever wonder, and we'll end with this, do you ever wonder why God decided to use us? We're not the most efficient means. Why would he use one of the most inefficient means to proclaim the gospel? Because we are the fruit of the gospel. And therefore, we are our own evidence that Jesus came and that he's coming back. Please, let's, at Christmas time, don't lose the message of Christmas. It's not about the gifts and the decorations. It's about a Savior who came and a Savior who's coming back to make all things new. The Johns, the Gabriels, the people of Annapolis, the people of our nation, the people of our world literally are dying to hear that message and to be given hope. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the hymn that reminds us. We thank you for your word that tells us that Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose again and is coming back. We can see the hole that you kicked in earth to heaven in our hope. In the eyes of faith, that cannot see physically, but can see spiritually. That you have given us all of the evidence that we will ever need on this side of heaven. In the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus and our own faith, which had to be given, that we might believe. And I pray for people of our families at Christmas time, we're going to gather and to celebrate and enjoy each other's company that we might also talk about hope, the hope within us. And may a stranger never be a stranger to us and to your hope. Give us the, give us the courage to tell the world about the hope that lies within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.